Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we continue and finish our little series here in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, Ministers in the Local Church. We find ourselves in part 4, and it is part 4 of 4 today. Uh, We continue on the qualifications of the ordained offices of bishop and deacon as the scriptures present them. We have been very slow and deliberate uh, throughout this passage, seeking not uh, to wrap our understanding around the Word of God, but to conform the, the, uh, our understanding to the Word of God. Excuse me, the idea there not to wrap the Word of God around our understanding, but to wrap our understanding around God's Word. We considered what it means that the bishop should be the husband of one wife two weeks ago. Last week, we focused upon the scriptural principles related to the minister and money. And then finally this week, we're going to pick up in verse 4, and consider the nature of the fellowship between the minister and his family. We're going to consider the nature of the, the um, character of the, the minister himself. And of course, we're going to speak also of the deacons and their family. So the Bible says in verses 4 and 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 3, speaking of these bishops, "...one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house... How shall he take care of the church of God? So the bishop is said here to be one who rules his own house well. That word rule here means to preside, to be over, to supervise, to lead, to uh, direct, to superintend. It's used eight times in the New Testament, and most of them are speaking toward the nature of ministry. More specifically, however, not the nature of ministry of a minister as it relates to his family, but the nature of a minister as it relates to the local church, that a minister is to preside over, to, uh, to rule over, to superintend the local church. And so once again, as we spoke about last week, the nature of pastoral authority, so too we see that the reflection of a pastor as it relates to his family is supposed to be a microcosm of the pastor as it relates to the local church, that he is to preside over, to rule over, to superintend the local church, he is to do so as well over his family. Now, I said it's found eight times in the New Testament. It is only in this time and then in Titus, which is also speaking toward the pastor and his family, that we see the word used of a father and family. Now, the idea is that the bishop and the deacon are both to be men who show a capacity and a dedication to taking care of those over whom God has given them. And there is a contrast painted in these verses, which is very important. A man's family is, by biblical principle, the deepest essence of his purpose. And we find this not only as it relates to his children, but also relating to his wife. So the idea being uh, that a man, a minister, needs to have the right priorities as he seeks to invest into his family uh, just as much as he invests into the church. But we also see the idea that as he invests in his family, so you might understand his investment in the local church. But a man's investment is intended to be into his family, into his children, and into his wife. Now, of the wife, we find that the love that a man is intended to exercise unto his wife is not just a love related to her emotional contentment, but a love that is intended to lead and to direct his wife into greater heights of spiritual distinction, just as Christ is doing to his church. And of course, we learn about this from that great passage that relates to marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 28, the Bible says this, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Notice the illustration that the scriptures give here, that the husband is called to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And this is not speaking here. Christ does not love the church just in some sort of uh, manner of emotional fulfillment or even just in direct provision. But notice that as Paul elaborates upon this idea of of Christ loving the church, it is an intentional love that seeks not just to provide for the church, or not just to bring the church contentment, but to grow the church, but to progress the church, but to cause the church to continue to develop in its character and in its its um, function. So the church is brought about by Christ into a cleansing, into a purification, into a sanctification, that he might present it, that Christ might present the church back to himself as a clean, as a beautiful, and as a glorious church. So verse 28 says, ought men to love their wives as their own bodies, to give themselves to their wives, to pour himself into her in order that she might reach her fullest spiritual potential. And then this is a part of your task as a husband to lead your wife, to guide your wife, to help her reach her maximum spiritual potential. Remember what we talked about a couple of weeks ago as we talked through uh, um, the divorce and remarriage and the, the teaching there from the Word of God that a man and a wife, when they are, they are no more two, but they become one flesh. You are one entity with the husband being the head of the wife That means, husband, that it is your responsibility, it is incumbent upon you to help your wife reach her spiritual potential. In much the same way we find the Scriptures exhort fathers unto a deep and abiding investment in the next generation. So a husband is intended to invest into his wife to help her reach her spiritual uh, potential, to guide her, to lead her, to grow her, to develop her so too with children. And not just for the sake of his children as the scriptures present it, but also for the sake of the next generation, for the sake of civilization. Moses exhorted the fathers in Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 45 through 47 in this way. The Bible says, And Moses made an end of speaking all these words to all Israel. This is at the end of the book after he'd said all of the things that he wanted to say to Israel before he died. And he said unto them, set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe to do all the words of this law. For it is not a vain, not an empty thing for you because it is your life. And through this thing ye shall prolong your days in the land whither ye go over Jordan to possess it. So Moses tells the nation here, to set their hearts upon the word of God and specifically commands the fathers to see that their children observe the commands of the law. And Moses says, because it is your life. Now, there there could be two ways that we interpret this, and I think both ways are valid. Number one is, fathers, this is the object of your life. This is to be your life. But second, and I believe probably more aligned with what Moses was saying here, this is what will secure your life. 
This is what will bring about your, your safety, your wellness in the land. Your, your days may be long as your children follow in the footsteps of righteousness. Spiritual investment in our children, fathers, just like spiritual investment in our wives, is investment in them, most certainly. It's investment in you. And it's investment in your church body, your church family. It's investment in your civilization. Because they are our life. They are our future. They are the next generation of the church. And this is a very important perspective for ministers to maintain. To invest into children, for me to invest into my children, is for me to invest not just in my family, but into my church, but into my civilization, into my society. We spoke some weeks ago about the message in 1 Timothy 2 to women, that the deepest essence of a mother's contribution to the church is the investment that she puts into her children, right? Right? That was from the very end of 1 Timothy 2. Notwithstanding, verse 15 said, she shall be saved in childbearing if they, the children, continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. So her redemption, the essence, the deepest essence of her value in the church is that she is bringing about the next generation of the church. The same can be said for fathers, only it is incumbent upon us to rule them as it is incumbent upon the women to raise and, and uh, 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 invest in them and care for them. And so we see this concept in Deuteronomy 32. We see it reflected in 1 Timothy 2. And the contention that Paul makes in 1 Timothy 3 is that if a man is unable or unwilling to invest in the nearest and most accessible form of ministry within the context of the church then how can the church body have any confidence in him to perform the task for the broader church body? If a man does not know how to rule his own house, how shall he then take care of the church of God? Now, just like with the last two weeks, there's not a full consensus as to what this should mean or the extent to which this standard should be gauged. One of the foundational parenting principles that we find in the Word of God is given in Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, there is no end to the debate in the church as to how we should interpret this verse. Should we interpret it as a promise, or should we interpret it as a principle? Should we expect that those who did the, property, the, 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 the job properly will see that fruit in their children so that it is inevitable that if I do the job properly, my children will inevitably continue in the faith so that any child who departs from the way does so because his parents failed, because they were not trained up? Or should we see this as a principle, a general rule that those who are trained properly in the way have a significantly higher likelihood of staying that way and of maintaining those principles. And the reason why this becomes complicated is twofold. First, we find principles such as the sowing and reaping principle in Scripture, which help us understand that spiritual truths bear spiritual fruit, that spiritual input bears spiritual output. We know the power of God to supernaturally work in and bless those who have submitted to the word of God. You can see this all throughout the Old Testament. Multi-generational sins 
and multi-generational blessings. It is, it is something that we find regularly, that a man is blessed, and because he is blessed, his children and his children's children bear the fruit of that blessing. Or a man is cursed, and because a man is cursed, his children and his children's children bear out the fruit of that cursing. We see how God says of Abraham, I know Abraham that he will teach his children to walk in the way. And so God expresses confidence in the children of Abraham. And yet we see how one of the children of Abraham was cast out from him named Ishmael and who ended up becoming a true thorn in the side of Isaac. Isaac. So we have this idea, this spiritual principle of sowing and reaping. The fact that what, what we plant will grow. What we invest will grow. But we have another principle as well that's very important in Scripture, and that's the principle of free will. That each person is autonomous. That God has given each of us, including our children, the, the right and the capacity to choose. That God has, throughout the Scriptures, chosen to constrain Himself in His sovereignty within the context of man's choices. So that even in the best of circumstances, each child has a choice to make as to whether to walk for or contrary to, with or contrary to, the truth. And so we see examples in Scripture. Cain and Abel had the same parents, right? Jacob and Esau had the same parents. Sons of Israel, same parents, sort of. Same father, let's put it that way. When we think of men who made major mistakes, like Saul, a man like Saul who had some things going for him, but who kind of went mad, and yet he had a son like Jonathan, of tremendous virtue, and a great friend to David. And we see the same in the world around us, where parents of less spiritual distinction or faithfulness turn out children of tremendous spiritual character. We perhaps find it more difficult in seeing these things, to place this verse directly in the promise category and are rather tempted to confine it to the realm of principle. That those who are exposed to the truth have the best chance of assimilating the truth and to this end, there would be a general feeling of ambiguity around whether or not a parent would be at fault if a child strays from the truth. Now, I honestly don't personally know where to categorize this verse. I, I don't have a definitive This is my answer for you on this one. I certainly don't necessarily have a biblical uh, answer to, to hinge this on. It's important to understand the nature of the Proverbs, that they are calls unto wisdom. They are proverbial in nature, right? A proverb is a proverb. They're proverbial. We, we would be interpretively, it would be very interpretively dangerous to read the Proverbs in the light of promises. And I'll show you why in just a few moments. But here's the thing, and we'll see this particularly as we go beyond 1 Timothy 3 and we read in Titus the qualifications of the ministers. One of the things that helps us see that there's something more to raising a child than just giving them your best shot and then hoping they make the right choices and they may make the right choices or they may not is the fact that a pastor is judged not just for his capacity to rule them. That's what we see in 1 Timothy. But when we get to Titus, you'll see that he is judged on whether or not they are unruly, 
on whether or uh, on, on the manner of their choices. And if a man did everything right, if we can say that a man can do everything right and his children can still become unruly, then how is it that a qualification for a pastor to rule the church can be that his children cannot become unruly? It doesn't really follow that, that it's just a roll of the dice. If a pastor might need to step down from ministry because his children have gone bad. And that being because if his children going bad is a definitive mark of the fact that he cannot well rule the church, then there must be some correlation between the way he raised those children and their results. So while I don't have an answer for you on Proverbs 22, verse 6, whether it's a principle or whether it's a promise, I don't have that answer for you. What I can say is, number one, every person does have the right to make their own choice. We know that. And I can also say that there must be, there, is, there has to be a spiritual element beyond just raising your children, whereby there can be a, a, a measure of assurance, as me, as a pastor, that if I invest in my children properly, that they will turn out. In the same way that if I invest in my church, there will bear fruit. There must be some spiritual assurance of that or else I could, do, I could do everything right with my children, they could go bad, and I could be disqualified from being a truly good pastor simply by the nature of my children's choices. Now, if it was just First Timothy, that would be fine because we're just talking about blamelessness. But when we get to Titus, and you will see this, that's where things get a little muddied in my thinking on this. So we have this proverb here. We'll come back, you know, we'll, we'll get back to 1 Timothy 3 in a moment. But let me, let me show you why there's a, a potential danger in us reading the Proverbs as promises. The Proverbs express the essence of God's design and how we best align with it. But in a world full of sin, not everything that the Proverbs give as rules end up coming to fruition in every circumstance. And I give you, by way of example, just a few other verses in Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22, verse 7 says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. We find here a proverbial statement, the borrower is servant to the lender, that the rich rule over the poor. In this, we find a broad principle, that those who borrow are indebted to those who lend. And this is one of several verses in, that, that we would use to warn against the nature of debt, that the borrower is servant to the lender. And in, in, as a broad principle, this is true. As a broad principle, this is true. And indeed, the very best way to avoid any such terrible situation is to not get into debt. And yet we regard that in any given society, ours being one of them, there are protections in place because we are a debt-driven society, right? And so there are particular protections that are put in place so that a borrower is protected against the nature of a lender's power. And in doing so, this principle, while it's still a very valid principle for every age, in any given circumstance may not come to fruition in this exact way. It's a principle by which to live. It's a mindset by which should have that should factor into every financial decision that we make. And it should be more important the bigger the stakes. But it isn't a hard and fast, every single time it's going to look this way, rule, promise, right? 
What about Proverbs 22, 29? Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean, that word meaning dark or obscure men. So a man diligent in his business will stand before kings and not before mean or obscure men. A man diligent in his business will catch the attention perhaps of those kinds of men who are also diligent, those kind of men who need diligent men, those kind of men who are looking for diligent men. And so that as, as a general rule, as a principle, you should expect that if you are diligent, then other men who are looking for diligent men might find you and say, you're the kind of guy I want. I want you to work with me. I want you to work for me. I want you to be my companion. I want to be around people like you. And the kind of men that are dark, that are obscure, that are dishonest, they're not going to be want to be around a diligent man because that kind of person, uh, number one, doesn't want to um, have to deal with always feeling bad because the diligent man is around them doing so much. They look bad when they're around diligent men. But also the diligent man is not going to be a man that allows them to do their work in the way they want to, which might be dishonest and such. And so as a general rule, this is absolutely true. And yet we cannot say from a promise, in a promise idea, that this is always the case. That every single man who has lived in a diligent manner has found himself among other men of diligence, among men uh, who appreciate his efforts. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's the exact opposite. That a man of diligence finds himself under the thumb of people who are not and he just drags them all along. Perhaps you've been there before in, in your work or in school or whatever the case may be. And so it is that, once again, as a principle, this is absolutely true. This is a human nature principle reflection, but as a promise, it, it falls a little bit short of the mark. A great principle to live by. The principle holds true, but not necessarily a promise. And all of this matters, as I said, because... The question that we ask as it relates to this idea of pastoral qualifications and, their, and his children is, by what standard is a bishop judged for his children's actions? Now, if, as far as 1 Timothy chapter 3 is concerned, we really don't see the standard here nearly as much the character of his children as it is the manner of his leadership. In this passage, that's the point. Does the disposition of the children reflect that their father is a man who leads them, is a man who is invested in them, is a man who is placing care into them, and are they aligned with him because a man who rules well will have his children in alignment, will have his children under his subjection? Do they reflect that the pastor of the church exercises this care and this diligence and this faithfulness and his responsibility to lead? Are there the marks of investment in his children? Is the question. But this is, of course, as I've mentioned, not all that the Bible has to say on the subject. If we go over to Titus, we see a passage regarding the qualifications of the bishop. And we find that the focus of this passage is not nearly as much about the father's capacity to lead as it is about him teaching and his children assimilating the teaching of the truths of the word of God. So we read in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. So notice here the focus is not as much upon whether or not his children are in subjection, but whether or not they are faithful. So the first one is, are the children uh, obedient? Are they under the father's rule? 
That's 1 Timothy 3. In Titus chapter 1, it's are they faithful? Are they full of faith? Do, have they assimilated the truths of God's word into their lives? And this one is the one that is more interesting, right? This one is the one that causes the pastor to perk his ears. This is the one that causes us to, to, to start to wonder if there's more to it, if even the, the idea, if there's more to Proverbs 22, verse 6, than simply do your best and let your children have their free will. Is there a connection between the father and his investment? Is there a spiritual of blessing that God places upon those who would truly invest in their children, plant those spiritual seeds of righteousness that will grow in the sowing and reaping principle sort of a way? You reap what you sow. If I plant righteousness into my children, can I expect it to bear fruit? And it's very difficult to say I, 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 anything but yes, I can if I am invariably judged by the faithfulness of my children. And so they are those who are not accused of riot or unruly. That word riot there, notice, is the word asotia. We saw this word, we've seen this word a couple of times. We saw it in, uh, as it related to the bishop. We saw it... Um, in uh, last week in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, or excuse me, two weeks ago, when in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, that word being asotia, carnality, wasteful living, but be filled with the Spirit. This same word here, carnal manner of living, excess, the natural behavior that becomes that, that, that is indicative of carnality. So we see this reflection here, this contrast. Faithful children not accused of living a carnal or an insubordinate lifestyle. And that is the standard that the bishop must seek unto for his children. And if his children are not blameless in this manner... They don't have to meet all the qualifications of the bishop. But if they are not faithful, full of faith, if they are unruly or riotous, if they are carnal, then it reflects that the pastor himself is not blameless. And that's what we see in Titus chapter 1, verse 6. If the children of a man who teaches the Scriptures choose to live in a manner fundamentally opposed to that which is spiritual... Then the father failed. He failed to validate the truths of God. And this is one of the things that we understand as it relates to this. As it relates to fundamental truth. Truth is self-validating. If we live out the truth in the eyes of our children, if we are expressing the truth, but not just expressing it, but validating it in the manner in which we live our lives, if we are placing those seeds of truth into them, and we are watering those seeds free from hypocrisy, with clarity, with distinction, with faithfulness. And we are not allowing those, that root of bitterness, those, the, the, the hypocrisy, the, the secret sins, to taint that seed. It, we, we ought to expect it to grow. We can expect it 
to grow. Again, to what extent? I don't know. I don't know that line. I, I, I don't understand that. But from Titus chapter 1, verse 6, maybe, maybe this is just for my own sake. <laughs> I have to believe that God is not going to levy an expectation that can disqualify a pastor upon a man who has no control over what's going to happen or who, who, who lacks the, the control to fundamentally, to fundamentally be able to, to bring about in his family faithfulness. We continue through the qualifications of the text in 1 Timothy. Verse 6. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. This is the first of two ideas where that we begin to see the devil get involved with the pastor. First, the condemnation of the devil. Then we'll see in verse 7, the snare of the devil. This qualification that he be not a novice, that word novice there literally means newly planted. It would speak most certainly of someone who is a new believer, but not just in the sense of time. We, we kind of get things messed up with time sometimes. Uh, I always marvel when I hear uh, uh, a parent, particularly a Christian parent, say something to the effect of, well, my child is now 18, so that means that they can, do, do, they can make their own choices. Or my child is 16, that means that, that they get to drive now. Well, wait a minute. Since when are, did we start binding maturity to time? Now, granted, there are certain levels of maturity that, that, that won't be hit till a certain level in their life because the brain is still developing. Uh, human brains develop well into their 20s, particularly uh, men's brains develop significantly slower than women's brains. So men are going to mature at a slower rate than women, and this is natural, and this is the way God has designed things to be. But when we start to get things in a time frame type idea, when we start to actually set time frames on things, well, what does it mean that he's not a novice? What does it mean that he's not a newly planted pastor? Does he have to wait six months? Does he have to wait a year? Does he have to wait five years? Does he have to wait 10 years before he can become a pastor? What does it mean that he's not newly planted? We need to be careful with time. When it comes to growing physically, right, nobody can really cheat that system. Every person grows in a generally similar way. Now, people are going to have different growth spurts at different times, and uh, this is indicative of, of culture. This is indicative of genes and whatnot uh, up here. You know, one of the things my wife and I have noticed is that our children tend to be significantly smaller than a lot of the other children. A part of that is because my wife and I are significantly smaller. Uh, a part of that is because around here, my wife calls it the land of giants, right? There's that that, that German Scandinavian uh, blood and genes and people are just bigger, they're taller. And that's the way it is. So there's going to be growth spurts at different times. And yet that being said, there is a general, there's a general template, right? People are going to have, a child's going to have growth spurts, then they're going to level out, then they're going to have another one. Girls are going to have their growth spurt in their early teens. A lot of boys are going to have it closer to their later teens. And this is how people grow. Different heights, different times, but we can put a general timetable on it. Now, to some degree, we can do this mentally as well. As I just mentioned, there are mental developments that, that, don't, that, that it's, it's only an exception to the rule that they come earlier or later. We can generally have a timetable, a template for how a child's mental development is going to grow. And there's, a, there's some wiggle room there, but there is a good general template as it relates to mental uh, development and maturity. Some children are significantly more mature than others at, a, at a, a greater rate or at an earlier time. But there is a universal recognition that maturity is something that takes time and we can generally put that maturity into boxes. However, this is very different 
physical maturity and mental maturity are very, very different than the spiritual timetable. Spiritual maturity doesn't work on the same type of timetable. This is one of the reasons why we're a non-age segregated church. Because to place our children into classes by age group, by, to, to regulate their spiritual growth to their physical growth, becomes the least effective way to, it's just a very ineffective way to do it. Because you have children, some children getting saved at five, some children getting saved at 10, some children getting saved at 15. And so that child that gets saved at 15 now needs the basics of discipleship. And there may have been a child who's been saved for 10 years at that point, And they're in the same class. Spiritual maturity. It may be that someone who gets saved immediately starts yielding everything and they start growing by leaps and bounds and they grow in faithfulness and they learn quickly and they're yielded and they're ready to go and in a matter of months they've made more progress than someone who's been saved for 10 years because they have been, they've, had more, they've put more faith into, the, into the, the process. To this degree, the idea of a novice is not so much an age idea or a time idea, but really a spiritual maturity and preparedness idea. Satan is very busy about the work of attacking ministers. I, uh, I'm always thankful on Tuesday nights we have a prayer time. And uh, this, this last Tuesday was one of the, one of the times where uh, God's people really prayed for me. I heard a lot of men praying for me. I'm thankful for that. And I hope you pray for me uh, because there is a great amount of targeting of pastors by the devil. Satan would like nothing more than to derail the ministry of a man by causing him to become proud, lifted up, to rely upon himself or upon tradition or upon anything other than the Word of God. And particularly when a young person is elevated quickly. There is a tendency for this, right? Because a person who is older, a person who has been around the block, a person who has seen a lot of things, he's more grounded in, in his own limitations. He's more grounded in his own failures. He can appreciate that more. Whereas a young person, when they're elevated very early on to a position of authority, they start to think that they must have done so because there's something special or because they know things that other people don't or they've figured things out that other people haven't. And perhaps they start to reject counsel and they stop listening because they say, look, I know what I'm doing. I must know what I'm doing because I've been elevated to this position. And that's a part of youth, right? It's a part of youth to think you know everything. It's one of the things that, that, that you find almost, almost universally about young people is that they really, really think they know everything. And there's a part of this that can be tempered by the word of God and by the Proverbs and by, by, by teaching. But there's a part of this that is just going to be there. There's a part of this that, that cannot be subsided. And in one sense, there's value there because youth tend to be idealistic and they have passion. So they have passion and they have idealism and those things are necessary to the church as long as they're tempered by maturity. And this is where, of course, the elders, the, the elder men in the church come in to temper the passion of youth with the maturity of experience because there's certain things and and, and anyone who's lived for a while knows this, there's certain things that only time can teach. There's certain things that only experience can tell you. And so this one who it would be a novice 
would be someone who is spiritually unprepared, who is spiritually immature, who is not ready spiritually for that which is placed upon them, and they would be lifted up with pride, thinking that somehow they are something that maybe that man who's been in the church for 40 years, but he is not a bishop, that, that, that they've got something that he doesn't, which is probably the exact opposite. And so being lifted up with pride, he falls into the condemnation or the judgment of the devil. He becomes spiritually ineffective. Often he becomes spiritually damaging because he was not ready for ministry. Many cults begin this way, that a person comes out of orthodoxy and then he gets this really strange view because he's reading his Bible, but he didn't really think through everything. And then when he gets confronted on this really strange view, he gets embarrassed And instead of saying, you know what, I was wrong and repenting and realigning, he doubles down. And then he starts to formulate an entire system around this thing. And he creates this system and then people begin to follow him. And this happens from time to time because because a man was a novice. And he was lifted up with pride and he fell into the judgment, the condemnation of the devil. He was not ready. He did not have the whole armor of God at his disposal. He was not built up to function as a blameless man. He had some major spiritual flaw which the enemy was able to readily exploit and in doing so, he brings blame to the church and to the name that the church represents, the name of Jesus Christ. And we see, of course, this in the church all the time. Men who get lifted up with pride and so they fall, they falter in some way. They begin to live hypocritically. They seek to uh, handle their problems in ways that are unbiblical. They don't want to confess their faults to a brother. They don't want to seek accountability because that would mean that they're not the super pastor that they want everyone to think that they are or that they themselves think that they are. And so they fall. And people see this man fall who they loved and who they respected and then they get disillusioned and they walk away from the faith. People fall headlong into error, maybe following their pastor headlong into error. And the people exalt themselves against the church and they say, see, the church has failed and see, the God behind the church has failed and people see it as proof that the Bible is not true and lives crumble and testimonies are damaged. And it is for this reason that the pastor need not be a novice. He needs to be a prepared man. And this does not necessarily mean Bible college or seminary. As a matter of fact, many seminaries do the work of tearing these men down and turning them into men who are, who are not qualified. But rather, we're talking about a man who is spiritually stable, who is spiritually balanced, who is spiritually knowledgeable, who is founded and grounded in the truth, who reflects a strong determination to believe and to obey the truth of the word of God above men's applause, above the words of men, above the ideas of men, a man who is humble, a man who is willing to listen, a man who is easily entreated, a man who is ready to change, a man who is not so caught up in the words of other men that he fails to see the words of God. Final qualification of the bishop, verse 7. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. So uh, as far as the church is concerned, the danger is that he would fall into the condemnation of the devil, that he would be lifted up with pride because of his position in the church, and then that the, jud- the, the devil then finds a handle to swing him around with, and he ends up falling, and the church is damaged from the inside. But then there is them that are without. When you see this phrase, them that are without in the New Testament, that is speaking of the unbeliever. 
That is speaking of those who are outside the church and not outside the church in a church membership way, not outside the church in a church attendance way, but outside the church in a spiritual regeneration way. So them that are without are those who are not in Christ. And a pastor needs to have a right testimony among them that are without. A pastor with a poor testimony who is odious or disdainful to the world around him can fall into reproach and so become ineffective because of the reproach. And then that leads to a snare. And that snare might be the idea um, that he needs to conform himself even more to the world. Or it might be uh, the, the snare, again, of some sort of strange cult who thrives in people hating him rather than in seeking them as the lost. This qualification is that a pastor not only have a good spiritual reputation among those who see with spiritual eyes, who can see the spiritual character that, that underlies the man, but looking for a, a man who has a good reputation among those who have carnal eyes, among those who are seeing with the physical. Now, what does this not mean? This does not mean that unbelievers need to see pastors as relevant or as as exciting or as, as cool or as anything of the sort. The idea is not that the unbelievers should look at a pastor and see them as one of him. Not the idea that the unbeliever walks away and is like, hey, yeah, that pastor does all the things I do and thinks all the things I do and says all the things I do. That's great. That's not the idea. The idea is not that, you, that, that a pastor lives a carnal life. We've already seen that. So that can't be what's being said here. But rather that just as the pastor needs to be spiritually above reproach in the eyes of those who have spiritual eyes to see, so too he needs to be above reproach in the, uh, physically above the approach, reproach in the eyes of the world around him. If my neighbors see me legitimately as lazy or as angry, if my neighbors see me in the backyard yelling at my kids or they see me in the backyard sitting in a lawn chair sipping on lemonade while my wife is doing a bunch of work. If my neighbors see me as, hate, as, as a dishonest man, if I have a garage sale and I cheat one of my neighbors, I sell him something that's clearly broken and he comes back and says, hey, this thing is broken. And I say, sorry, sold it. Cash, no, no receipt, no returns. If they see me as a selfish man, a dishonest man, a lazy man, an angry man, if they look at me and they see in me characteristics that even the world around me says are wrong, that even the world around me does not like, if I'm a bad neighbor, if I'm a bad citizen, if, I, if, if, if my neighbors can hear me peeling out, speeding down the road, going well past the speed limit, putting people in danger, blaring my music loud in the middle of the night. If, 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 if I have that reputation among them that are without, then I have failed because I can no longer have a testimony. I am not above reproach. And that's the idea here. This is not speaking of spiritual things. If you asked a, a portion of the world about me spiritually, about what I preach spiritually, the words hate, angry, bigot, homophobe would come up probably pretty often, right? 
Those things would come up if you ask a carnal person about my preaching from the Word of God. So we're not talking about that. We're not talking about spiritual. I'm not going to submit myself to the spiritual to the spiritual dictates of the unbeliever. We're talking about the physical here, right? If a pastor submits himself to an unbeliever's perception of his doctrine, of his spiritual distinctions, then he just becomes like the world. This is what the seeker-friendly church has done. The world sees me as hateful, so I'm just going to take anything that the world thinks is bad out of the Bible. The world sees me as judgmental, therefore I'm going to take anything that talks about sin, because that's what they mean by judgmental, out of the Bible. If I do that, then I have just fallen into apostasy. But on a material plane, if I have a problem, if I have a bad reputation, if I'm a dishonest man, a selfish man, an angry man, an unpleasant man, if I as a human am someone that people just don't like, if I do wrong, if I'm proud, if I'm selfish in the eyes of even those who don't believe the Bible, then I give the world every reason to reject my spiritual claims on the basis of the fact that I am not, certainly not reflecting them in the carnal, in the physical. And that would make me unqualified for ministry. Okay, moving on to the deacons, as we must hasten on. We find many of the same qualifications here, verses 9 and 10. Holding the mystery uh, of the faith in a pure conscience. Uh, oh, I missed verse 8. Let's, uh, let's read verse 8. It's not on the screen. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. And those are all the same things that we've seen as it relates to the pastor. Holding the mystery of, of the faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be proved, and let them use the office of the deacon being found blameless. So the call here is that the deacon be proved. That word meaning tested or approved. And when he be found blameless, if he be found like the pastor, the kind of man who physically and spiritually, physically in the eyes of the world, spiritually in the eyes of the believer, uh, is blameless, has nothing by which the, the church or the world can look at him and say, this is a man that is to be blamed and thus cast doubt or dispersion upon the name of Christ, then he is a man who can be a deacon. Now, we've taught a number of times in regard to the nature of this New Testament concept of the mystery or a mystery. Something which was not revealed, a mystery in the scriptures is something which was not revealed in history. It stayed unrevealed to the prophets, unrevealed in the Old Testament, but then was made manifest to the church in the last days. And here in verse 9, we see the mystery of the faith, but this is certainly not the only mystery. In Romans chapter 16, verses 25 and 26, Paul wrote this, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but, is now, but, it, but now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience to the faith. So we see a good definition of a mystery here, right? A mystery is something which was not made. It was kept secret. It was not made manifest. It was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest by the prophets and the scriptures to this time. Paul also defines this concept in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, "...how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote a foreign few words." whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So once again, a mystery being something which previously was not revealed, but now is revealed. And there are any number of these mysteries found in the New Testament. 
In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, we see the mystery, this, this mystery in Ephesians 3, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and the partakers of his promise by the gospel. This is one of several mysteries in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, Paul speaks of the mystery that God would blind the eyes of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, Paul teaches of the mystery that not every generation of the church will die, but that the final generation of the church will be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds, the word that we call the rapture. That's a mystery according to 1 Corinthians 15, 55. That was not revealed in the Old Testament, is revealed to the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, Paul expounds upon the mystery, as we talked about already, of Christ and his church as reflected in a husband and a wife, so that when God ordained the, the marriage between a husband and a wife, when God ordained that it would be one man and one woman together uh, for life, it was not known at the time that this was intended to be a picture of Christ in his church until such time as Paul revealed that in Ephesians chapter 5, the mystery of Christ and his church. So then which mystery is the deacon supposed to hold in a pure conscience? What is this mystery of the faith that 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 9 speaks of? Well, this is not the, the only time in 1 Timothy 3 that a mystery is spoken of. And a mystery is, in fact, defined in verse 16. So it strikes me that Paul is defining for us the mystery that is to be held. In 1 Timothy 3.16, we'll talk about it next time we're together. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up to the glory. We memorized this verse a few months ago. Paul speaks of this mystery of godliness and what he is speaking of here is the gospel. The deacons are to hold the mystery of the faith. Hold this mystery of the faith in a good conscience. That they are to be exemplary as representatives of the regeneration. Now again, this does not mean sinless perfection. This means a good testimony. Deacons need to be affirmed men, unwavering, unambiguous, have an understanding of dedicated to living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men who understand the spiritual, who have a command of the scriptures, who have a knowledge of the gospel, and who reflect it well in their lives. And these men are to be proved, are to be tested, are to be examined. Not everyone should be allowed to take this role. They need to be vetted. They need to be qualified. They need to be knowledgeable and spiritual men. They need to be blameless men. And so too should their wives be, verses 11 and 12. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their houses well. There's a controversy here, which is why I put, put in brackets there the, verse, the words that are italicized in our King James Bible. And I gave you those brackets. I don't normally do that because it would take a lot longer for me to do that, and my sermons already take a lot of time. But, um, and you, know, you have your Bibles right there so you can follow along. But I'm giving you them here because of the nature of a controversy, and that being related directly to the way this is written and the order in which it is written. The word used in this passage, translated wife, is a word which more generally means woman. It does not imply or demand a married woman. It can be a widow, it can be a single woman, it can be a married woman, it can be a wife. And between the broadness of this word and the fact that Paul references these women prior to addressing the deacons as being married, 
along with the fact that, as I indicate here, and you can validate in your King James Bibles, the word must there, their wives, is in italics, showing that if we translated this purely, it could be translated, even so, women be grave, not slanderers. Many have been led thus to claim that Paul is instructing here not the wives of the deacons, but rather women deacons, deaconesses, as they're called in many churches today. And the idea of women deacons comes from the fact that throughout the New Testament, there are any number of instances where the word deacon is used to describe a woman and their actions. We find it, I'm not going to go through all of them today, but we find it in Matthew 27, Verse 55, the Bible says, And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. So the Bible tells us that Jesus had many women who deaconed for him, who were deaconesses, who ministered unto him throughout his ministry. But the most direct reason why people state that there is a deaconess idea here is from Romans chapter 16, verse 1. In Romans 16, verse 1, the Bible says this, I command unto you, I, excuse me, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Cantrea. So in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Paul commended to the church at Rome, right? He's writing to the Romans. And he sent the, the church at Rome a woman named Phoebe. And she was called a deacon of the church in Cantrea. That was the eastern part of the city of Corinth, would be the region of Kentrea. So Paul was sending a woman from Corinth to Rome, called a deacon, commended by the church. And this brings up a very similar feeling to when Paul writes at the beginning of 1 Timothy, that he sent Timothy to the church of Ephesus, or he sent Titus to Crete, or whatever this case may be. He sends his ministers from place to place, and he writes letters commending them one to another. And to this end, people read this and they say, aha, here's a woman being commended in the same way, called a deacon, going to the church of Rome from the church at Kentrea, leading people to believe that, that deacons could be both men or women in the church. And this is not necessarily unfounded, right? As we read this verse, as we read Romans chapter 16, verse 1, it is not an unfounded idea. And thus they think that what's being said here is that these deaconesses must be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Some valid arguments to be made here. Perhaps the most obvious being that if this were speaking of the deacons' wives and their necessary character, why would Paul speak to the wives of the deacons but not to the wives of the bishops? You don't see anything about the bishops' wives. You say, well, the there there could be both deacons and bishops, right? So this is speaking of both the deacons' wives and the bishops' wives. Well, then why was it put before it says that the deacons need to be the husband of one wife? Why wouldn't it be put after that? Why wouldn't you have bishops be the husband of one wife, deacons be the husband of one wife, and their wives be this way? So there is a unique problem as it relates to the order of events here that causes people to, to say, okay, so we started talking about deacons, and then we talk about these women, and then the deacons' wives, and it se seems to make sense then, when you combine that with, say, Romans chapter 16, verse 1, that we are talking about deaconesses here. The women who are also deacons have some measure of, of qualifications upon them as well. 
Whereas if, if women deacons had a few extra qualifications above that of just the men, right? So the men had these qualifications, and then the women had sort of a second set of qualifications. It would make sense that they would be put here just before Paul says that the deacon must be the husband of one wife, going back to the males. But that is kind of where this argument starts to break down, doesn't it? There's no different word for deaconess than there is for deacon in the scriptures. And within our context, it is a true interpretive stretch. Even with all of those things I just told you, it is a true interpretive stretch to assume that the church allowed women to be deacons in an official capacity in the church. First, remember our context. Within our context, Paul has already spoken to women in chapter 2, right? That their role in the church is to deport themselves in a manner that is godly and submissive. That they are not to usurp authority over the man. That they are not to teach. They are explicitly forbidden from holding positions of authority. And this is the first thing Paul says before speaking to bishops and deacons. That women are not to hold authority. So then if the deacon is an office that has any measure of authority in the church it would be entirely contradictory to place her within that context from what Paul has already said, within this very context. For them to be held up as some measure of, of, of representative of the church in this way, Paul has already said how the women represent themselves in the church by deporting themselves with submission and godliness. And so to add to them this other measure of representative, representation in an, office, in an official capacity doesn't really make sense within the context. Second, even with the order of verses in, verse, in, in 11 and 12 being what it is, it's difficult to get around the fact that deacons, the same word being used throughout, right? We're not switching between deacon and deaconess. That deacons are commanded to be the husband of one wife. Nothing is said about a woman deacon being the husband of one man. And notice that, again, deacons must rule their children well, a command which would not be a responsibility laid upon the mother. It's a responsibility laid upon the father, scripturally. So remember in our first message, we talked about the word elder. And in our first message, we said that there are only a few cases in the New Testament where the word elder is explicitly used to speak of the office. And in any number of other contexts, the, word, the same word is used, but it's actually speaking of an old person. And uh, for this reason, uh, there's, there's some muddied waters as it relates to the word elder. And that there are only a couple of places where we can definitively say, yes, this is speaking of an elder. And all the other places, it is incumbent, it, the, the burden of proof lies upon the context itself to prove whether or not it's speaking of the office or it's just speaking of an old person. The same thing can be said and must be said about this verse, about this word here. The word deacon often simply speaks of a minister, not an office in the church, not an office ordained to influence and have authority over the body. And the burden of proof rests upon the passage itself to establish that when it speaks of a deacon, it's speaking of the office, not just the function of ministering one to another. And we established in that first message that we do believe the deacon to be in office. Right? When Paul writes to the, speaks to the church of Ephesus, he, he asks them to gather together the bishops and the deacons to speak to. 
And so we would, we would recognize from that a measure of authority in the church that Paul gives not just to the bishops, but to the deacons. And if that is the case, then interpretively, contextually, having a woman in that official capacity would not make sense interpretively. Now, as it relates to 1 Timothy 3, where the context speaks directly to women not leading in the assembly, where both bishops and deacons are commanded to be the husband of one wife, I do not see enough compelling evidence that Paul intends to affirm that women can have this official capacity in the church. Now, we know that women have many roles to play in the church and that the idea that women serve the church is something that is implicit. There are women in this church who take upon themselves any number of responsibilities that I either uh, am not able to do or that I don't have time to do. Taking things off my plate and in that capacity serving in, in very much a similar role that any other deacon would. There, uh, whether because of propriety, ministering, a woman ministering to another woman, in a manner that, that I, I can't. Or whether it's for the sake of time, we have women in the church that go and visit the other ladies. There are some ladies in the church who visit Bev regularly. And, and um, to whatever extent I visit people, it's always a blessing to have other people visit them too. So these are ways that women are serving the church and women are being a part of the ministry. But as it relates to the office, to, to the, to the, in the manner that we have defined the office here at Legacy Baptist Church. I just don't see enough here to have any confidence that Paul is affirming an official title of the deacon to women and that that is what is being said here. To that extent, I, I am very comfortable with the way the King James translates this. Even if the order leaves some question marks in one's mind. Verse 13. Speaking, continue of the de, uh, continuing with the deacons, for they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul speaks of a spiritual blessing associated with deaconing, that those who well minister to, to the ministers, those who well minister to the bishops and elders and pastors, purchase to themselves what Paul calls here a good degree. Now, this could mean a couple of different things. First, it could mean that Paul is reflecting uh, the office of the deacon as a step in, in the advancement unto a bishop. The word literally means an advancement or a step or a threshold. So it could mean that the one who is, a, is an affirmed deacon is the one who purchases to himself the advancement to being a bishop. That in this, then, Paul would be giving a sort of um, suggestion as it relates to how this should go. That within a local church context, what you should first do is have men become deacons. And if they affirm through their lives and through their ministries, well as a servant to the servants, well as a deacon, perhaps as they're learning to teach and as they're learning to, to lead in that way, then they can advance to the position of bishop in time. Could mean that. Second, it could also simply mean that those who use well the office of the deacon should be expected to have heightened rewards before the throne. In the same way that the Bible talks about the minister of God um, being worthy of double honor and then that when the great shepherd comes, um, that he will reward those who are good under shepherds of him. Could be either one. I think both have... Uh, 
interpretive merit. So these are the requirements, both of the bishops and the deacons. Now, before we conclude today, and we will move on. Next week, we'll, we'll continue in verses 14 through 16, or next time we're together. I want to address one more thing. We talked about it in the first week. What about those who don't meet the qualifications, not by lack of character, but by lack of circumstance? We spoke in our first message about the fact that by implication of the word elder, it might be appropriate for the church to set their sights upon men who are older as bishops, men who have already shown that they can lead their families, men whose children are already faithful, not being accused of right or unruly, men whose testimony in a community and in the church is already affirmed by years of service, maybe even as we just considered, men who have been deacons and so have affirmed themselves in a lower manner of service, not lower in value, but lower in authority, and then they step into a position of authority after they have already affirmed themselves, and they are men who are not novices and men of stability and men of experience. But what about men who are not married and so can't reflect themselves as the husband of one wife, can't prove that they rule their families well? There's nothing in the Scripture. There, there, were, there are those that would say, well, if a person's not married, he can't be a minister because of the qualifications. That, that doesn't ring true to me. I mean, Paul was not married, Right? And so we see those, any number of whom were unmarried in the scriptures, who were still leaders. And in fact, Paul encourages the men and women of Corinth not to marry for their present distress, but to live a life of singleness where they can devote themselves wholly to the Lord. So if a man is not married, or what if a man is married, but he and his wife can't have children? Does that mean he cannot be a minister because his wife cannot have children? Because he and his wife cannot have children. See, that, that does not make sense. Does this make them unqualified because they aren't old or aren't married or don't have children? To place this kind of burden upon the ministry would be a rather inconsistent burden to place and a difficult one to bear. Much to the rather, the idea here is that if a man appears affirmed unto ministry if he meets all of the qualifications that circumstances have presented before him. It's the church's job to discern the man for who he is and where he is at his life to that point. And then the church is in the process of watching, of affirming, that as the man continues his ministry, they be continually looking to ensure, to, to ensure that he is living up to the qualifications. And if at any point he falters with those qualifications, then there needs to be a reevaluation. If, if at any point that man falls into a state of reproach, it would be incumbent upon the church to seek another to fill the office who would be blameless as the scriptures desire. Now that, of course, is... is an element, just like everything that comes with care. We, we talked in 1 Timothy 2 about the fact that we do not believe at Legacy Baptist Church that the women being silenced in the church means that a woman can't ask a question under submission. And we said that because women are allowed to speak, that that brings with it added accountabilities and added responsibilities. That it is more incumbent upon church leadership if we allow women to speak in the assembly to police that interaction to make sure that there is not a lack of submission. 
and that for many churches, they say, well, the, the way that we can heighten this to make sure that there's no problem with women coming outside of their submission is to just not have women speak in the church. And so you remove the entire element of, of responsibility if you do that, but you do so at the expense of allowing women to ask questions and, and, and contribute in that way. In the same manner, it's certainly a valid thing to say, we're going to find a man who has been in the ministry for a lot of years and who has already raised his children and they turned out well and uh, who is the husband of one wife and, and who is an elder and that would be the absolute safest thing the church could do. And anytime the church goes out of its way to reduce some of those things, we don't know yet if he's raised his children well or he doesn't have children that we can prove his capacity, um, he doesn't have a wife yet or, or he, he's not planning to get married. Uh, he is not older. He is a young man. Uh, he's perhaps been saved for many years. He has those marks of spiritual maturity about him, but he is a man that might still be susceptible to the, to, to the, the elements of youth. With each one of those steps where, where you, you take that bar and you kind of lower it, not in an unbiblical way, just in a way of saying, this is something that, that is opening up further potential for danger, that lays an extra and added responsibility on the church to be careful and to hold that minister to those qualifications. As a church, you have a young man as a pastor. I've been here for a long time now. Seven years, eight years, eight years. I've been here eight years now, but I'm still a fairly young man. I started when I was 26 years old. I was very young. By virtue of me being a young man with a young family, it is incumbent upon the church. The church has taken upon, you have taken upon yourself the responsibility that if I were to stray, you need to be on top of that before the church is damaged. You need to be on top of that before blame is brought to the cause of Christ. And that is a part of the responsibility that this church took upon itself takes upon itself by virtue of the fact that I'm not a man who has children who have already been raised so that you can see how they've turned out. By virtue of the fact that I'm not a man uh, who has extensive years of, of experience in the ministry to see how I've done. And that's your responsibility, just as it's the l responsibility of the leadership to make sure that as women are allowed to contribute to the body, that they do so in a manner that is proper as it relates to the scriptures. This is what happens when we take upon ourselves these things. We are taking upon ourselves respon added responsibility and added accountability. So there's no inconsistency between the familiar requirements of the bishop and moral requirements. And by this I mean if a man does not have a problem with alcohol at the outset of his ministry but develops one throughout his ministry, then it would be incumbent upon the church to remove him before it can cause blame to the church but it wasn't wrong for them to hire him or, or to call him when he didn't have that problem, right? He developed that problem. If a man reflects good behavior at the outset of his ministry, but becomes angry and contentious as his ministry continues, then the church would need to remove him before he can cast blame upon Christ. In much the same way, if a minister is unmarried or if he has no children or if he has young children, and then he were to get married and, or his children are to grow and... Uh, as they do so, you would be continuing to seek, the church is continuing to seek those marks of blamelessness. 
so that while there would certainly be less room for reproach in the life of a man who has lived longer, who has raised his children, it is not wrong for the church to ordain a young man or a man with young children or a single man into the ministry, but the church must in these instances be willing, along with this decision, to have the courage to hold that minister accountable to the standards which are laid out in the Word of God. And that's not easy, especially when the pastor's been here longer than most of you. Right? And because of that, for you to go up to him and say, Pastor, you don't qualify, is not an easy thing. But it's the right thing, and it is the responsibility that the church takes upon itself. It mu- you must. The church must. Such are the qualifications for those who desire this good work of ministry in the local church, intended to ground the church in sound doctrine, to direct the church into safety and effectiveness in the gospel and called to reflect blamelessly both toward the church and toward the unbelieving world of the character and testimony of Christ's church. That is our application for today. Not anything particularly save to exhort you as the church to your duty. I don't necessarily want to walk around feeling like I'm under a microscope and that would make ministry difficult. But simultaneously... I understand, as you ought as well, that I have responsibilities and that these qualifications are my responsibility. And regardless of what you think of me as a person, regardless of of the relationship that we have, it is incumbent upon this church to protect itself. Now, I'm not calling you to throw me out, and I hope you don't have reason to. But thank God for those people who will come up and say, hey, pastor, how are you doing? Hey, pastor, I'm praying for you. Hey, pastor, I've seen this in your children. Be careful. Hey, pastor, do you need some help? Hey, pastor, I have this resource for you. doesn't always make me feel good. But it's important. Because it's important that you have a minister to lead this body who leads it well, It's important that you have a man, men, bishops, deacons that lead this church who are approved, who are commended, who who will not cast blame upon the church of Christ. And so we're all called to do our part, to be right, that the church would not suffer blame. Because as we'll see next week, the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. The church is what reaches people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is upon which reputation the community will see. It is the representative of Christ. And God forbid that we should cause Christ's name to be reproached through our church or through the church's leadership. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.